0: Welcome to episode six of Through the Noise with me, Alex Banks. Today, I'm very excited to welcome Michael Girdley. Michael is a serial entrepreneur and investor based in San Antonio, Texas. He is the chairman and co-founder of Jura Software, a hyper niche software acquisition company that currently operates nine different businesses. On the investing side, Michael is co-founder and partner at the Geekdom Fund, a venture capital fund that invests in early stage internet tech startups from pre-seed to seed. He is also the co-founder and partner at Dryline Partners, a private equity fund focused on B2B recurring revenue technology businesses. Michael is also the owner of CodeUp, a coding and data science bootcamp, Red Runner Coffee, a drive through coffee chain, and Almo Fireworks, a fireworks retailer and wholesaler. He's also authored several books on programming, his first written whilst an undergraduate at college. Now, I've been super excited to do this one, and it's time to dive right in. So, Michael, thank you for joining me today.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Really looking forward to getting stuck in right off the bat. I'd love to hear more about the beginning talk me through that how did you first make your way into the world of startups and business
1: yeah well i I started my career working for other people um which i think is a really good thing to do in retrospect i mean you get such perspective working in other people's small businesses or other people's um other people's big companies big corporations um, and so that was where, where I got started doing that in the Bay Area. You know, after college, I had moved to San Francisco. And so this was in the late 90s during the dot com boom. And, you know, I worked there and then through six or seven years in the Bay Area, starting in engineering roles and then working my way into marketing and strategy roles, um, I started to learn more about what I liked and didn't like and what I was good and bad at. And, uh, an opportunity came along to return to Texas here and my entrepreneurial career started uh, by joining our family business uh, and working eventually to be CEO of that for about eight or nine years. Um, and in the startup world, I got I got exposed to that through a place that we have here in San Antonio called Geekdom. Uh, and it was basically the idea that that a local philanthropist put together that if he created a space where all the technology entrepreneurs and startup people in town could congregate, you would get critical mass and like amazing things would happen. So, you know, I got involved in like the tech stars program that we had here at the time and started to meet other angel investors and want to be angel investors and startup founders. And so that's how I really got involved, you know, on the startup side beyond the small business uh, stuff.
0: Yeah, really, really fascinating to hear that transition. I guess where did that real passion for technology and software specifically specifically stem from? Was it going back to an undergraduate range, or was it a little bit later from that?
1: Uh, I would say it was earlier. You know, when I was a kid, you know, my parents recognized that interest in technology by me from a very young age. So. You know, I had a had a good background, great parents, and they bought us a computer when I was twelve years old. And it's been, you know, an interest of mine ever since then.
0: Yeah, that's that's excellent. I I love how, how early it really, really starts. I think that's brilliant to then sort of bleed into something that is, you know, of of huge, huge credibility now. I think you you mentioned that you now work at the intersection of investing and operating i'd love to dive into this a little bit more and how you actually came to find this groove
1: yeah i I feel like i do uh and maybe it's a less elegant solution than you would hope for but i'm actually in terms of you think of that kind of pure allocator mindset like the people that you see on twitter or other platforms who are just very good and just and happy to do it just sit there and talk about a particular stock all day and and not be the the person in the arena uh i've tried that and i've learned i really don't enjoy that very much uh and then in terms of the people who like are pure operators and feel fulfilled you know working on a single mission and being hands down heads down making sure like the trains run on time all the time like i've tried that and learned i'm also not very good at that um and for a number of reasons but like that's how i ended up doing a lot of the model of what i do now which is a process of elimination kind of wiping out things that i was either bad at or didn't give me any joy uh, at all to be doing
0: yeah that makes that makes total sense michael um and obviously now you've you've come to run quite an assortment of businesses from software acquisition with Jura to a fireworks retailer and wholesaler with Alamo. What would you say is the most important lesson you've learned from running these businesses?
1: Yeah. Well, well, one, one nit in the way you said that when, when I hear that I run or I operate things, I actually don't right. I, I'm a supporter of the right people uh, and a coach for them and a, and a, and a person who's a resource for them. So like I, people are like, how do you like run nine businesses? And I actually don't, I don't, if I run any of them, I'm doing a huge disservice because like that's just not possible for one person to even run two businesses. So there are very smart people who are actually better running those businesses than I can. And so I'm happy with that. You know, I think, I think, uh, and this is probably the least creative answer in history. to like, what's the common thread amongst all of those? Um, you know, it, and I think, going into businesses like cash becomes so important all the time um, and that's the thing I'm always worried about with every company like what is what is the ability to withstand kind of you know uh, tail events and kind of bad things that are happening by having a very strong cash position and so that's you know I'd say that's the common thread and you know, I'm a big fan of taking business and breaking it down to kind of simple first principles when you think about it. And for me, like, how do we make sure companies have oxygen and that oxygen is kept? Uh, can- that's, the, that's the biggest thing I've learned. Like, keep it simple. Make sure you have money in the bank. Life will turn out OK if you do
0: that. Yeah, I, I'm a big believer in that also, you know, finding the right people for the role and being the best backer of them. And I guess to dive a little bit further into that in terms of picking the right people who can run and operate these businesses to their full potential. What are some of the characteristics of these effective leaders that you choose to take the helm of these companies that you've nurtured from inception?
1: Yeah, I think there's there's two categories of things uh, or two lenses to think about it. Um, so lens number one is kind of this idea that um, there are kind of universal personality traits and things that people do that set them ahead of others. Right. So, you know, some people talk about grit, for example, as being one of the things that, um, that will cause people to, to, to get ahead, uh, in Texas, sometimes they call it giving a shit. So, so that kind of idea, like, do you, do you care? Like, do you really want to succeed? Like, um, you know, a lot of those things are universal, no matter the state of the company or the, the role type. I mean, cultural values, I think there are universal cultural values that set people apart and make them high performers. Like, do you have a strong work ethic? Do you really care? Um, Do you practice honesty? Do you see each person as an individual and value them as a human being? Like, those are things that no matter what your role is, you have to be able to, to do those things. So I look for those kind of values and characteristics, no matter what, you know, no matter what the the specific situation is to find a leader for a business. But then I think the second thing I was trying to articulate is there isn't one size fits all for finding a leader for a business or a CEO. Um, You actually end up realizing that the CEO role is very different uh, based on all the different factors that come together for a business, everything from size, the mission, the market, the geography, the type of people you already have, like, different types of people and different types of skill sets are needed based on all of those factors as they come together. So there isn't one size fits all for picking a CEO for a a venture.
0: Yeah, really, really interesting there. And I think one point that I do want to go into a little bit further is where did that self-awareness come from to know that, look, it's time to partner with great operators to build these business out of you? And where does that handover point lie in your eyes? Yeah, so I
1: think that um, I think that things work best when there's clearly defined roles and expectations. And there is a clear definition of, say, when you have a company, what a board of directors or a majority owner does versus what the CEO does. So, you know, like, if I find myself doing the CEO's job for them, like, which is tempting, right? Because when you have ideas or your experience, like, it's tempting to go start doing the CEO's job for them. But when I, I've had to unlearn that. Right. And, and when I do that now, like, I'm like, okay, I got to stop. Like, don't do the CEO's job for them. So I'm very, I'm very dedicated to like, okay, let the CEO do their job. I'm going to do the board member's job, or I'm going to do the shareholder's job. And based on that, it's going to give us the best chance of success. So, very classical definition of what those things are. the CEO needs to execute on it and then the board just has some pretty simple jobs right It's make sure the right CEO is in place, um, supervise them and, and manage their you know manage their compensation and all that kind of stuff and then approve board level decisions including strategic plans. So you know just keep you keep everybody in their role make sure they know what their job is and when everybody just does their job things turn out turn
0: out better. Excellent. Now, you put up a great thread on Twitter late April, all on building startups through a system called effectuation, essentially playing jazz in the world of startups through improvisation. I'd love to hear, Michael, how you landed on this technique and why you believe it's really the best way to do startups.
1: Yeah, it's definitely the best best way for me. You know, I think there are plenty of good ways to build businesses, um, this methodology definitely works, works well for me. I know there's people that like some of the other ones. Lean startup is one, um, the waterfall model, which is classically venture capital, um, the, the venture capital approach. Those are all ways that can work just fine. You know, effectuation is something that I actually ended up working on and finding, uh, finding organically. Like I just started to do it um, through my normal practice of building companies and only later did I discover that I hadn't really created anything from scratch. Um, but only like five to seven years later did I discover that it already had a name and somebody else had invented it before before I even discovered it.
0: What were some of your processes that you were operating beforehand before you stumbled onto this methodology? And how would you compare and at least contrast them um, in terms of your effectiveness before and after, Michael?
1: Yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, so... The, the kind of high level of of how I differentiate these three three different methodologies or the three common ones. You know, I think you have Lean Startup, which spends a lot of time on customer development. So it starts with, here's what, you know, here's what's going on with the customer's problems and then how do we solve those? Um, then you have the waterfall method, which is, okay, let's start with a big vision of what we want the world to look like and then work our way backwards to make it happen. Effectual takes a third, or effectuation takes a third way of doing it, which is you start with the thing that you can affect upon the world. So the change, the the resources that you have, the change that you can make, and you start to build things and use that as your vehicle for learning. So, you know, I had always been kind of frustrated doing stuff with lean startup because I would go talk to people and, yeah, you might find some problems, but rarely would you find any sort of kind of ground groundbreaking thing. So, you know, the the classic kind of quote there, you know, from Henry Ford, who was the automobile manufacturer and innovator in the U.S., like was like if i'd have asked people what they wanted they would have told me they wanted faster horses right not cars so you know i know lean doesn't have to end up that way but too often it does with these kind of just small ideas that that aren't that interesting then you have the and i i had done that like i did the customer interviews and i was like none of these ideas seem like fun (laughs) coming out of this there's got to be a better way to come up with interesting ideas um and then doing the waterfall method like the downside there is you end up going down this very high-risk path. So you need outside capital. Your likelihood of being an outside success is is pretty low, though if you do get it and turn into the next Airbnb or Uber, that's very exciting. But like, is that much fun to risk big chunks of your life on a, a huge home run swing like that that's probably going to miss, but you might get lucky? like that doesn't sound that appealing to me either like i i like to be in control of my own destiny much more than that so that's how i ended up really with the effectuation model you know because you can see that you're going to do a lot by starting with what you know and then when you start with what you know and what you're able to do you know you know at the very least you're going to start with a, a good vehicle for learning and only then do you start to put a big vision on top of it based on all the stuff that you've learned um, so I feel like that's really the best of both worlds between, you know, those other two methodologies and this
0: one. Yeah, I think that's great. It's, it's very important to focus on starting with the thing, at least like you said there, Michael, the change you can make and understanding what you can and also what you cannot control. At least pivoting back slightly, you, you recently attended Berkshire Hathaway's annual meeting. And the reason why I know this is from the pure comedy you were dropping on twitter as a live commentary throughout the event michael um, and for those who haven't actually read that thread i highly recommend you do but when we look at Jura software and the acquisitions that you've facilitated so far can we cross some similarities to the berkshire model
1: yeah i think it's a great question by the way that shows a ton of fun i highly recommend it to everybody uh it's like going to the woodstock for capitalism uh, but it's also kind of hokey like they they sell you Dairy Queen bars and stuff for a dollar. Like it's super fun. Um, Anyway, like I've read all the Warren Buffett kind of profiles, snowball and a lot of his letters. And, you know, I think a lot of those ideas around, you know, durable, sustainable cash flows uh, deploying capital, at high rates of return, playing the long game. Like, you know, I've deployed those ideas in other stuff. Um, You know, my my opinion on the Berkshire model uh, is so many people have tried to do exactly that, that it's very difficult at this juncture in in our, in in our evolution of capitalism to replicate that. Like, gone are the days when you could, you know, when Warren was first starting out, like you could go out and there were stocks that were high-quality stocks trading for two and three times earnings, right? And nobody was buying them. Um, that, that doesn't happen anymore. Now, you can find those types of things in other places. Or you can come in with more complex models that maybe are a bit more active or a bit more hands-on or a bit more transformative for the companies. And you can kind of unlock those types of value uh, at those types of prices. But, you know, I think that what we've ended up doing is take a lot of the Berkshire ideas around ownership, accumulation, that sort of thing, but replicating exactly what Berkshire does. Like we do stuff very different, like at Dura, for example, we're much more what we call an accumulator, um, kind of like Constellation Software, than, say, you know, what Berkshire is, which is just a pure passive hold holdco. Um, and so I think you have to do stuff differently just because just somebody already did Berkshire. You can't go do another
0: one. Yeah, you mentioned playing the long game there on you know, ownership and accumulation. How do you see this strategy playing out with Jura over the next 10 years?
1: Yeah, I think it's it's great.
0: You know, just
1: and to give people context for Dura, it's an accumulator of software businesses. We've done 10 acquisitions so far. Um, my two co-founders are former Rex-based guys, uh, and we just started, we bought the first company with our own money. It was a company out of Utah, and then we have just keep kept taking the free cash flow from that and use that to go buy more, you know, high cash-producing software assets and then run them really well. Um Where do I think that's going to go? Like, I, it's one of the things I like about being this stage in life. I'm 47. Putting together 20 and 30 year plans seems pretty straightforward now. Like, I don't think I could do that when I was 25 or 35, but right now it seems totally achievable um, to think in those kind of time horizons. And so, you know, our vision for it is to play the long game. Um, You know, we do want to take the company public someday um, when it makes sense. Uh, But in the interim, like we just want to keep working on that snowball of acquiring companies, running them really well, generating cash, redeploying that into more acquisitions um, and growing that way over time. Um, And eventually, you know, that compounding, if it goes 20 to 30 percent per year, uh, once you get to 10 years or so, those numbers start to get really big. Um, So we're playing the long game there. And, you know, the good news is the long tail of software companies is just so long. Like there are so many relatively small software companies out there um and we plan to keep buying more of them so if any of your listeners do have a small software business especially a b2b one that's kind of boring um dura would love to talk to them about buying it (laughs) so
0: absolutely you you mentioned the transition to this phase of your life now michael how would you segment your career and for where did your greatest learnings lie
1: uh You know, I I mean, I think as a meta comment, like I'm, I'm really trying hard at this stage in my career to keep having like a beginner's mind and be very curious. Like I think it's a real danger as you start to get to middle age, you're just like, oh, like, you know, I'm not going to listen to young people, or I'm not going to keep reading, or I'm not going to be curious about random stuff because I've found things that I like. So like, I'm, it's, it's a real challenge right now. Cause I can see that impetus, like that's pushing me like the wrong way. And I'm really being mindful about it. You know, I think the, the, the learning feels like it's been very barbell for me in terms of the early part of my career. And then the most recent part of my career, um, you know, the early part of my career, I worked for a person who was perhaps one of the worst bosses in human history. Um, you know, I think that was such an amazing learning experience um, that person, you know, I, as I look back on the thing that person that, that, that person did to me and some of my colleagues, uh, who were working for, for them, um, you know, like I learned so much from that. Like, I think that translates into to so much of the effort that I've gone and put on in successive years to be the type of boss that I would want to work for, because I just saw it. I saw this perfect example of the worst boss in history. Uh, and that happened early in my career. And then here later in my career, like I'm getting exposed to so many different things and the impact of Twitter and social media and what I'm doing, like the learning has just really accelerated um over the past few years and and I think that's just fine with me. I'm super I'm super happy with it. I hope it doesn't stop.
0: How has your perception of startups specifically relating to raising money changed across this duration of your career coming out from the dot com bust?
1: Yeah, um you know, I think, I think, I think it's to be clear. I spent a lot of time Post. dot com as a small business entrepreneur, so there wasn't much raising of money going on during that period of time. We were deploying our own capital uh, in many of those kind of scenarios. You know, I think my 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 understanding of how, say, venture capital works versus kind of the the other universe of kind of private capital that's out there it, it continues to really evolve. Um, you know, over time, I've really started to see how the venture capital game gets played more deeply. Um, and I think in a way that I didn't understand, say, 12 or 14 years ago when we first started doing some angel investing and some venture capital investing through some local funds that, that I'm a part of. Um, so I didn't. I, I feel like I have a deeper understanding of how venture capital works. Um, which maybe that's just like the dumbest comment ever. Because yeah, you're, you're like yeah, you're supposed to. It took after ten years, you're supposed to learn something. So, um, you know, that's really shifted. Um, I think the 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 distinction that's been pretty interesting is to learn how much the path that people took to make their own money affects the lenses and the types of things that they want to invest in. So, you know, for example, in the Bay area or in Austin or some of our New York, you have a lot of people who've made big money from doing high growth venture backed startups. They're very comfortable writing checks back into those types of um, those types of things. But when you go to Kansas city or Nashville or San Antonio, you know, and I'm in San Antonio where there's markets where people buy at large, only a handful of people made made their wealth through high growth startups. Um, it's an uphill battle to explain to somebody who, you know, has uh, wealth from oil and gas or from small business services, you know, how things work in the world of startup funding. Um, so I've seen that, too. It's just been a fascinating, you know, a fascinating journey into the mindset of all of these
0: people. Running that vein of raising money, you said you don't angel invest. You do something called Cupid investing. What makes this style of capital allocation appealing to you?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's, first of all, very appealing because a good rubric for how, or a good strategy for how you're going to like, uh, invest should very quickly allow you to cut out a lot of deals that you know aren't going to be a fit for you and like many things you know i tried classical angel investing and i know people that love it like they think it's the best thing you know they get to meet lots of startup founders they get to feel like they're part of this journey they write a check and then maybe you know maybe you hear from the people before they come back to you asking for more money again a year later um and as i did that that i would see kind of that lack of fulfillment like oh i own 0.2 of this company that's very high risk like that doesn't sound like much fun. Um, and then the second frustrating thing that would happen in classical angel investing is uh, there are those times as an experienced business person when you see a startup founder making huge mistakes and you have no control over getting them to stop doing that huge mistake. You, know, you, have, no, you have no real impact when the big decisions come along. So those, those two things, that kind of lack of being close to the deal and really being involved and then having control to really impact it when the, when the kind of important inflection points in the company came along, like those were very, that was a very frustrating experience for me and why I'm just like, no, I'm not really interested in that anymore from a personal standpoint. It just gave me no fulfillment whatsoever. Um, What I did start to find that I enjoyed a lot was picking a few things and getting my hands very dirty in those things, going deep with the company, having a meaningful stake where there was going to be even a modest outcome would be something that would be meaningful to me. Um, you know, I wanted to, to stop doing that thing I didn't like and then start fixing those two things that I just talked about. Like how do I have a meaningful enough stake in this company to where I have both a level of impact on it, you know, as somebody who's really big on the cap table and then secondarily, like one where i'm going to have a big a meaningful enough kind of ownership amount to be able to say okay like um this is going to stay i'm going to stay engaged in this and um so that's how i transitioned kind of from classical angel investing to what i do now which is just just a few deals a year deeply involved making big commitments to those and then really 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 staying deeply involved in them to make sure that they're successful
0: Yeah, a great point there, Michael. Just touching on it again, I think owning that less meaningful small percentage of a company that's high risk, it can become a frustrating experience where you just don't have the ability to have your say on the decisions that are being made. Speaking of these hard decisions, what would be the hardest decision that you've had to make in your career so far?
1: Uh, It's a great question. You know, I think think it's always one that's the hardest is, is quitting. Um, and actually I have a Twitter thread coming out on Saturday about how to quit. Um, cause I think quitting is a learned skill. Um, believe it or not, it's not like something you're born to do, to do well, but you know, without naming a, a specific venture, like we started something and, you know, worked really hard on it. We had a huge amount of sunk cost and capital in it, not only our money, but other people's money. Uh, in starting this venture and we ran it for three years and eventually we just had to make the hard decision to say hey this isn't working right and and that's that's one where i got to do that in a collaborative um, collaborative nature with other partners but you know not only are you telling yourself that you were a failure and you didn't didn't get it to work um, you're having to go to other people and say hey like it didn't work you know we really tried this and We thought we thought it was going to turn out this way and it turned out to be a failure. Um, So I think those are hard decisions to make always. Um, And I watch other entrepreneurs struggle and never quit, even when it's very, very clear the thing is not working. Um, I think maybe that gave me more freedom to to say, like, okay, like don't, don't go down the wrong path on thinking about this venture. Like if it's not working, like be true to yourself, be honest with yourself and just make the hard call and move on to your next opportunity.
0: How do you quit? How do you learn to say no? Is this a function of experience, Michael? I think it's a
1: function of experience. Um, you know, the, the, the people that I know they get well adjusted the quickest, um, and end up kind of at middle age, really knowing themselves well, they, they seem to do two things. One is they say yes to a ton of stuff in their 20s. They go and try a bunch of different things, because I think that's the real only real way to learn what you aren't meant to do, is go try a bunch of stuff and see how you shape out. Um, the second thing those people do is stay incredibly mindful throughout the process of aging, right? They think about what what did what did this particular activity make me feel like what did it make me think about you know how do i feel now in retrospect would i have done this thing again um all of those kind of mindfulness questions where you're where you're looking into your heart thinking about it rationally and also emotionally those are the things that i see people kind of developing their perspective on stuff and learning about themselves and you know, it's just as a basic example for me. Like I've ter- I've tried to be, uh, tried to, to learn how to be a musician three, maybe four times in my life, and I've never been able to do it. And I've just concluded this is just not the right thing for me. I should just pay for Spotify and like not learn how to play the guitar. And you know, I think that's the same thing with a lot about life and your your profession. There is some sitting down, trying things, being okay to give up on them. And then when those things, you know, aren't the right thing for you, you know, move on to the the right thing and, and, and focus on that. So that's, that's, those are the two things I recommend. Do a lot of different stuff in your 20s. And then as you're doing that, and as you start to age, really pay attention to how the things that you're doing make you feel, do you have passion for them and all that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah. I I love that take, Michael. I think definitely I've, I've come to realize as well that, if you're early in your career, just go on this random walk, try and test new things. Don't be put off by stopping and starting because there's just so much optionality. I guess pivoting to something a little bit different. You, you spend your give back time helping make San Antonio a startup city. What excites you most about growing San Antonio's startup ecosystem?
1: Yeah, it's so first of all, I live here,
0: so it's easy
1: It's easy to do that. You know, it's not like I'm passionate about Minneapolis or something. Um so that's that's a real passion and I like I like seeing our community get better and I like the the startup community that we have here and the people that are involved in it. Um I think I'm also really attracted to underdogs um and feeling like feeling like San Antonio is, you know, a city that has potential but like we need to work to make it achieve that potential. Um you know, we're one of the poorest cities uh of the major cities in the US uh, extremely high rate of diabetes, um, low educational attainment, like all of those kind of things are stacked against San Antonio. So frankly, I just kind of like the fact that it looks like it's hard and it is hard. Like it's, it's something that's, um, you know, it's, it's not going to get fixed overnight. It's not going to become amazing overnight, but neither, neither did Austin become what it is today overnight. So, you know, I'd say those are the two things One, I, when I live here and two, you know, it's just an inspiring challenge
0: to work on. If you could be at the helm of change, overcome these hard problems, where do you see the city in 10 years' time?
1: Uh, man, I'm so bad at questions like this. People are like, I'm not a good vision type person.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, I I haven't even sat down to think about how I would lead us through change. I mean, it's easy for me to sit down and think about what the problems are and wish that they were better, but to some extent they're problems because, you know, the things I mentioned, diabetes, educational attainment, obesity, um, you know, poverty, they're they're problems because they're hard, right? If they were easy, somebody would be fixing them. Um, So, I, you know, I don't think I'm somebody from the outside here who hasn't gone in and done the work, uh, who is the right person to say, here's how we're gonna make San Antonio number five in GDP or something like that for, For the US, I mean, I I don't mean to duck your question, but like, I'm also like, I know I haven't done the work on this to be like, okay, here's, here's, you know, here's my, here's my three or five point plan on how we're going to get to this particular place. I I don't have a good answer for you. I just, I'm not qualified.
0: I wasn't expecting the first speech yet, Michael. (laughs) But, uh, But no, totally, totally appreciate your, your candidness there. Changing tax slightly to Twitter. I do want to know, because this is, this is obviously how we came to know one another, Michael. Why do you like Twitter and where do you derive value from the platform?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I've really learned to like Twitter a lot. I mean, it was hard to get into it, but frankly, like I was so bored during COVID that I had the time to devote to it. Um, you know, for me, for me, I think I use Twitter as a way that is very different than some other people do. A lot of people use it as just content marketing to funnel into things that they sell people, right? Courses or newsletters or masterminds or whatever. Like I have no problem with that. People should, people should definitely do that. For me, for me, I think uh, I'm in a stage in life where Twitter and social media is something that I see as an accelerant to the business I'm doing anyways, right? Which is, incubating growing and then supervising companies and that flywheel that happens so twitter podcasting social media like those are all things for me that accelerate that and magnify that kind of flywheel of things that i do so twitter twitter does those things for me in a lot of different ways uh, in terms of that magnifying of the flywheel so you know, first thing is, if you're going to write smart tweets, you have to try to think better, and you have to try to write better. Like those are all things that it forces me to do. Um, it forces me to be more mindful about how information I hear affects me. Like, should I be reading this? Should I be following this from this person? Should I care that you know Meghan Markle did whatever? Like, I don't. I, I've decided not to care about that stuff, so I don't spend time on it. And Twitter tests those kind of self-discipline things, which makes me better in that way. Um, and then the, the last thing I would say about Twitter is I've learned that if I just give on Twitter and try to help other people with things I've learned or things I know, um, the universe just pays me back like 10, 20 times or more every single time. So my best move is just to give on the platform and give in social media. And then that just gets reflected back to me whether I like it or not. Uh, an order of magnitude much more than say if I was asking somebody to buy a course or do something like that
0: yeah i'm I'm with you on that, and I think it's great how these platforms can be an accelerant to the incubation and growth of your current businesses, at least having mm-hmm. a, a very direct focus on you know writing and selecting your content diet. How has that in turn benefited the businesses that you're overseeing
1: i mean I think a great example. Uh, it happened to me this morning, um, and I know it's – everybody thinks entrepreneurship is like the super sexy thing. Like this morning, I spent like 45 minutes learning about cost segregation for depreciation and then discussing it with an accountant. Um, you know, that's something where uh, by following the right people who are talking about cost segregation as a tax strategy in the U.S., I'm like, huh, I wonder if we're doing – you because know, we own a lot of real estate. I was like, I wonder if we're doing that. And I went and looked in, and we're not. And it's like, oh, we need to be doing this because it's it's totally great when you can like depreciate instantly big portions of your investment and write that money off um, from your tax bills. And um, so, like, that was a great example. Like, I had curated who I was going to listen to. I decided to listen to them. I st- heard heard an idea that they had talked about at a concept that was new to me that I learned about, uh, and then I was able to take and deploy that into a real world situation this morning that could be easily a six figure plus kind of savings for us as a family. Um, so yeah, that kind of stuff happens all the time, all the time with me and Twitter and just just by the pure factor of just curating my feed. So I only see stuff from really smart people that I admire.
0: That's excellent. I think there are so many tidbits and strategies from specialists who are sharing knowledge for free. It really is a positive sum platform taking a step back now Michael what does your perfect day look like
1: uh I would be snow skiing all day oh, <laughs> so, I love that. Uh, <laughs> uh yeah I just as a I, the past five seven years I just fall in love with snow skiing Like I, I skied like 12 14 days this year and 15 days last year so now, it would it would it be perfect for me to do that all the time? No, because I don't get to hang out with my family, and my kids are great, and I don't get to see my friends. Um, but yeah, I mean, from a from a workday standpoint, um, you know, I love to get up early and be mindful of kind of getting up in a quiet house. So I usually get up around five. or something I want to do that. Um, I will leave my house around five thirty-five. I go to go to the gym that I go to. Um, me and some other folks meet there before our exercise classes. We do a stretch routine to try to make our bodies work better um, before we go exercise. So we'll do that for about 20 minutes. Uh, class will happen for like an hour. Then we go get coffee afterwards. I come home, uh, have breakfast with the kids. Uh, depending on which teenager I talk to, they may or may not acknowledge my presence uh, and then uh, then I get started on a work workday, um, often riding my bike down to my office, which is about six miles away. Uh, and then I'll do a combination of deck, desk work, one-on-one calls to people, um, scheduled meetings and board meetings, either in person or via Zoom. Uh, and then around five-ish, I do the same thing, get back on my bike and head home, have dinner with the family, and back asleep by like 8, 8.30. I like to go to sleep early. And I like to sleep a lot. So I would say that's kind of my perfect day.
0: Sleep and staying limber, those are two very, very important qualities that can never be overlooked in someone's life, Michael. So I love how you highlighted that. At least going on to the Q&A now, 24 hours before this podcast, I asked Twitter for questions that they'd like to ask you, Michael. Now, there was a pretty incredible response. So I've handpicked some of the best ones, starting with... Mike Bainbridge he asks what's your biggest mistake, and what did you learn from it
1: yeah I have a uh, actually have a thread where I wrote a thread on my sixteen biggest mistakes or maybe it was fifteen um, you know I think there's some some big mistakes obviously not buying Bitcoin in two thousand and nine huge mistake uh, that's kind of a joke but it's also reflective of the pattern of things that I've looked back on life and and wished I was more decisive and took more decisive action on things than, than I, I should have, or than I did. Um, And I would say the mistake I've made repeatedly is a mistake of inaction rather than a mistake of action. So I've tried to bring balance to that kind of stuff. So, you know, there was times where I knew in my heart of hearts, I should be doing what I do now uh, as a business leader and an investor And it took me probably three or four years longer than it should have to really go start and have the chutzpah to do that. And I think in retrospect was a lot of it was because, you know, I placed a ton of value on other people perceiving me as a failure if I failed at that venture. And, uh, that was just stupid. I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have given a hoot about what those people have to think about me. Uh, and I should just go try it. I had been, as prolific as I have been recently, I should have started doing that earlier um, rather than be scared. And um, it's easy to say now at the time, you know, it was pretty hard. But um, yeah, I would say that was the, one of the biggest regrets that I have.
0: Super valuable, Michael. Now, going on to the second question, Alexander Livag asks, do you need separate teams per software startup or is it possible to have multiple businesses developed and operated by a single kick-ass founder A-team?
1: Yeah, I think that uh I I think that focus is essential to maximize opportunities for success. So, you know, most everything that I'm involved in practices the business methodology called EOS. Um one of the things they preach, which I really believe, is the power of focus, um and, and not doing things that are out of your main mission. So, you know, I think it is possible for startup teams to pursue multiple things. Um, but I think the greatest potential for an outsized outcome comes when you have dedicated focus and driven determination to the mission. Um, so that's,
0: that's what I would answer to that. Perfect. CJ Whittington would love to hear an honest ranking of San Antonio's talent ecosystem and your views on correcting it.
1: Yeah. Well, I think there's, uh, when you think about talent in a city, it's not a uniform thing, right? So for example, um, you know, if you want to go to go around San Antonio and find people who are licensed private pilots or licensed um commercial pilots, like the talent pool is gonna be really good for that. Um or people that are um good architects, like our our talent pool's really good for some of those things. Um where San Antonio like most Uh, Most kind of second and third tier cities struggle is with highly specialized people, especially for specific industries. So say, for example, you want to find, you know, a DevOps person. Um, Say you're a technology company like you're not going to find a bunch of those people in San Antonio. They've if if they exist, it's because they've come out of places like Twitter or Facebook or other corporations that have big DevOps operations, and they both those people have offices in Austin, New York, L.A., San Francisco, Denver, those type of places. So, you know, for specialized talent, San Antonio is is struggles and continues to do so. Um, yeah, I would rank I would rank it just like the talent pools from most other places, where there isn't a big critical mass of say something like tech or a specific industry like solar. You know, a lot of, the, the San Antonio's just going to rank pretty low on those kind of things in terms of our talent pool here. Yeah.
0: Off the back of your goal-setting system, Michael, Robert Hunter Hall IV asks, outside of the more personal goals you've set, what are some of your goals over the next one, three, and ten-year time horizons?
1: Yeah. um, So, you know, the way the system, and I have a thread about it on Twitter, uh, the way the system I run works is you pick one number, one goal that you want to achieve a decade from now. It's basically running the EOS system, but for me personally, And then you define a set of goals um, that you want to achieve three years from now. So you, if you're going to achieve your 10 year goal, where do you need to be three years from now? If you're going to achieve, if you're going to achieve that three years from now, where do you need to be a year from now? And then what do you need to do this quarter to achieve that one year goal? So I do have goals written down for one, three, and 10. Um, I actually put those on my Twitter feed. I publish, uh, I publish what those are. Um, Some of the ones I have for this year is like a weight goal. Um, I have a goal for like how much cash I want to have in the bank, um, how many date nights I go out, uh, you know, with my wife per month, all that kind of stuff are things that I, I have goals around there. But the, the big hairy audacious goal is just one network net worth goal that I have for a decade from now, um, that I'm trying to achieve.
0: crypto asks, if you could go back in time and restart your career, what would you do?
1: Uh, well, first of all, I mean, total pushback on the premise. Like I've thought about this a lot. Like what, what if I went to a different college or what if I had different friends? Um, and you know, it's when you start to imagine that way, you forget, you forget all the good things that came from the decisions you did make and realize you wouldn't have those again. Like if I, if I went to a different college, I wouldn't have my college buddies anymore and stuff like that. Um, but anyway, that's just kind of the, Just the recognition. This is a total hypothetical premise because, like, I'm super happy with my life. Like, I don't really, you know, I didn't really make any big enough mistakes and stuff that I would go back and regret. You know, the life that I've lived. It's I've had. It's I've been so fortunate. I'm just so grateful for the opportunity that I do have. Um, you know, I think going back, uh, there's a lot of the regrets that I have, uh, in that regret that are, regret thread that are very, um, very poignant. You know, just if I could do things over again, I think I would definitely sprint towards entrepreneurship, uh, and more kind of aggressive things than I did that it took me too long in life to, to get to. You know, I wish, I wish I was doing what I was doing now 10 years ago. You know, that, uh, that would just be amazing, but. You know, it's impossible to change at this point.
0: Great. And our final question from Twitter is from Brian Glantz. And he asks, if everything went away tomorrow, Michael, and you had to be CEO of only one of your companies, which one would it be and why?
1: Uh, which one would be the most fun for me? Because they're all they're all different CEO jobs. I mean, that's kind of what I, I tried to say before, right? Every CEO job is is different and it changes over time. Um, you know, frankly, uh, the most, the CEOing stuff that I have the most fun doing is some of the nascent stuff, like the very, very small, like zero employee trying to get, trying to get you from like $0 of revenue to like a hundred thousand dollars in revenue. Like that's the most fun time of any business for me. Um, and I would probably pick the software product that we were producing, uh, called DM Bridge, which is a software product to help you fix the mess of your Twitter DMs. Um, and you can find that at dm dmbridge.app. Uh, anyway, I would go CEO that one.
0: I think that would be the most fun to work on right now. Love that. Need to check that out, Michael. That sounds like a highly effective tool because the DMs can get highly cluttered. So I've definitely got to give that a view. Well, now. We have a tradition on this podcast where, at the end of the show, each guest answers a question that was left by the previous guests. So last week we had Andrew Young, Strategy and Operations Lead at Meta, formerly Facebook, on, and their question, Michael, is, "What's one piece of unconventional advice you'd give to someone?"
1: wow that's a really good question you didn't give me this in the prep how was i supposed to be ready for this
0: <laughs> <question>? <laughs> i thought i'd spring it on you
1: what what is one piece of unconventional advice yeah i don't know every it feels like all my advice is very unconventional i don't know what have you heard me say today that seems the most unconventional to you
0: <laughs> springing it back on me michael i love this game <laughs> oh man that's got to be a uh... It's got to be a tough one. I guess focusing back in on, on, on Twitter with, you know, the, the strategies from building an audience and sharing online, that, that optionality of, you know, put yourself out there when the common notion is no, look, I'm going to be quite, quite reserved in the early doors of my career and, and not really uh, speak to many people online because I want to focus in on my career. Actually, no, go and put yourself out there and, uh, see who you can meet because sooner, sooner or later, you're going to meet someone um, and it's going to be a a very mutually beneficial relationship. You're going to add some value to them. You're going to amass this bank of goodwill and uh, good things are, are meant to be Michael. So that would be one of my pieces of advice that's slightly unconventional that, that I'd have to give. How about yours?
1: I like, I like yours. Um, That's, that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, I mean, I think an interesting one, and it comes to mind because I've seen it a lot recently, like so many of my peers, kind of Gen Xer, middle aged folks, they just totally are confused by social media, like they just don't don't know how to do it. Um, and it's because like, they don't actually bring their whole self to the platform. And that doesn't mean you have to like share what you have for breakfast. But I mean, like, actually, share your journey and what matters and what has transpired with you, like, So many like small business CEOs, for example, they're like, okay, well, we're just going to put up some platitudes and expect it all to be great. And nobody gives a crap. Nobody wants to see that. They want to understand what your journey is, what you're learning, what you know. And like, it presents such a cool opportunity for me because all the other like 45 year olds like refuse to do it. So it like creates this huge gap where like people are like, you're the only 45 year old on Twitter actually talking about stuff. And like, but I would tell people like, if you're of middle age or young age, like be comfortable bringing your whole self there. doesn't mean you need to tell every embarrassing detail, but you need to tell people enough to make it interesting for them to follow along and feel a personal connection to you. And um, yeah, I think I would advise that specifically to like my age group and older, like you're missing such an opportunity if you're not.
0: Yeah. I'm I'm with you there, Michael. People form affinity with people. They want to know the process, even if you're not necessarily running a business, just showing that vulnerability that will just massively help your your trajectory so i'm i'm very much with you there well michael we've we've actually come to the end now but this has been an immense pleasure having you on the show and i'm really thrilled we got to do this
1: yeah amazing thank you so much